0: Welcome to the Linguali podcast. This week, James and I are joined by Maha El-Metvali. Maha is a freelance conference interpreter with the EU and UN and is a board member of the Institute of Translating and Interpreting. She also runs an organisation that offers Arabic interpreting, translation and cultural training on Arab countries. Hello, Maha. Thanks for speaking with us today.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: So, how did you become an interpreter?
1: It is what I call a long and winding road, actually. Um, I grew up in Egypt in a bilingual environment in the sense that since the age of four, I went to a bilingual school. So half of the subjects were in English, the other half were in Arabic. So I was like constantly moving between these two languages and looking at um, the equivalents and how do you say this in English, how do you say this in Arabic, etc. And then I started then being interested in how um you for instance listen to an uh, to an um, arabic song uh, how would you sing that in, Ar- in english um even though like they are too Two different languages, and the, rhythm, the rhythms are different, and everything. But uh, I remember then when I was when I was ten, we had that uh, school concert, and I was assigned a part in it, and I was going to be singing that part in in Arabic. And then I found myself one day while playing, um, trying to translate the lyrics of the song into into English. And I actually managed it. And I went to my music teacher being very happy with what I did. And I, I told him what I did. And he was like, Okay, then you do not sing it in Arabic. And during the concert, you will sing it in English, what you have translated. So maybe that was my start. When I was <laughs> when I was thin. And um, but then after that, I um, I studied English and and comparative literature at the, at the American University in Cairo, um, and that was again there was this element of English and also comparative, so there was Arabic literature and from literature from other countries, um, and then right after graduation, I was asked to um, to translate a chapter in in a book that was the university was was publishing, um, so then I started I started doing that. Uh, and then after that, I did my, my master's in inter- international relations because I was interested uh, or I got interested during my study uh, in uh, in what is happening around me in, in the world. So even though I was doing literature, I was uh, I was uh, attracted by politics and international politics and international economy. And that was very much um, reflected in all the student activities that I did as a, as a student. So I did a lot of Model United Nations and Model Arab League uh, conferences. So I did my master's in international relations. And then I, uh, I started then um, working for international organizations after that. But um, translation and interpreting have always been like an integral part of, of, whatever, uh, of whatever I did. Uh so when um I moved to the UK I decided okay, that's actually what I what I very much like to to focus on. So I started um studying and, and following interpreting specific courses and that is how it happened. It's
2: a long it's a it's a, it's a long and interesting story. It sounds like you uh you were destined for it, Maha.
1: Uh, you, you never know. Maybe, like you know, sometimes you you are destined to end up somewhere, but then you do not always take the straight line to uh, to get there. <laughs>
2: you very rarely um, take the straight line to end up somewhere. You?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Which technologies do you personally use when on an interpreting assignment?
1: Um, it depends on. Um, on the context or wh- where I'm doing the interpreting, like in the booth, obviously, there is the console and all the technologies are, are set up for uh, uh, for the interpreters. Uh, but also I use the a tablet and, and a stylus for, uh, for preparation. Um, And then, if I'm doing consecutive interpreting, I uh, often use um, digital pen and smart paper combination, um, something that uh, I I learned from uh, my dear colleague um, Esther Rojal. Um, So, it is a system that she calls SimConsec, so that is something that I I often use when I'm doing uh, consecutive interpreting. Um, and then if I am doing a study visit and there is a lot of like walking around and it's a maybe a group of people, um, I use an amplifier, <laughs> so there is something <laughs> that I <laughs> wear around my neck, <laughs> and it's a microphone, and then it it amplifies my voice because um, I do not want to uh, to lose my voice by by the end of the day. So it depends it depends on the context.
2: Absolutely. And what would you say would be the mix between uh, booth interpreting consecutive amplified I don't know a word for that new it's a, a new technology you've come up with that
1: I think that most of the time um, I would say maybe 80% of the time I'm doing uh, I'm doing simultaneous interpreting in the booth Right. Um, but now actually more and more I notice that the client's Call you for what they call simultaneous interpreting, uh, but actually it is being done using um, a bidule or a tour guiding system, and and not necessarily in the booth. Absolutely. Uh, so yes, you are doing simultaneous, but things change a bit because of course the um, the sound quality is not as uh, it's not always as ideal as, as when you are working in in a booth. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, let's say eighty percent is simultaneous, and um, and the rest is between yeah consecutive and and liaison.
2: Okay. And in terms of the the types of customers you work for, would you say it's majority institutional? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. And so mm-hmm. interestingly enough, they're resorting increasingly to the bidule tour guide systems as well, are they?
1: Um, no, not necessarily. Like uh, clients in the private market, yeah. definitely, they uh, they are um, working more and more with with Bidul. Either they rent it or sometimes there are organizations that I work for, um, like NGOs, for instance, uh, that own their own system. So then they move with it from one country to the other. Um, and they uh, they use their own uh, their own systems, um, but for the for the big institutions, the the UN and and the EU, uh, no, that is still um, mainly in the booth.
2: That's still taboo for them.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I'm not sure about taboo. Like I know, for instance, that uh, that the European institutions have been working on um, remote interpreting, and um, and there was a lot of consultations taking place about. Um, the, the, yeah, the, the work conditions and how to make sure that uh, it uh, it is um, it does not like you know affect the, the quality of the interpreting etc. So so no, actually that uh, that definitely is is happening there. Yes, absolutely. Um, and also yeah. for the UN, sometimes uh, you have to um, interpret a presentation or question and answer session uh, from uh, one of the uh, UN staff members uh, in the in the field. Yes. Uh, so then, this also happens uh, um, via via remote, uh, like it happens remotely or a tele in a teleconference uh, kind of setting.
2: Okay, so that's something you're quite, you've had experience with, is it uh, inter, um, remote interpreting? Yes. And um, how do you how do you find it?
1: Um, with with the institutions, it is it is um more, most of the time uh, a good a good a good sound quality uh, but then uh, recently i have started working um uh, in the private market doing remote uh, interpreting um, and I think it very much depends on um, the system that is being used because this could either make or break the experience um, I don't know if I can like you know mention a particular brand absolutely but, uh, of course okay. uh, but like if um, um, if I'm talking about voice boxer I was, I was very pleased with uh, with the experience
2: Great.
1: because it was very much like being in the booth actually uh, but then with the added advantage that you could work in your pajamas if you want <laughs> uh so it was it was definitely like a booth setting where uh, you had your own channel uh, you could communicate with the speaker um uh, or with the other interpreters um via like uh, chat boxes um i could see the speaker which is for me important yeah. um i could see the the presentation slides that they had on the screen. So the the experience was, was very positive. So I, I was very pleased with it. Um, but then I tried another system that will remain unnamed. And um, that system was absolutely the opposite. So even though I could see so many people, all the participants were um, connecting their, their cameras and everything, um, the sound quality was really bad. Like the system could not handle having so many people present at the same time Uh, so then we had to ask the participants to all turn off uh, their microphones like mute their microphones if they're not speaking Uh, but even that did not help with all the echo that was happening Um, it was simply not possible to do simultaneous interpreting in that setting because every time the two people spoke at the same time uh, then you get an echo uh, and I lose then um, the, the voice of the of the speaker I'm supposed to be interpreting so it all had to happen consecutively um and it was it was a lot of um a lot of coordination to try and get that uh, the thing uh, going so i'm not uh, i was not very positive about that uh, that experience so, so it does, depends on the system
2: so would that have changed would, does that mean from now on if you are asked to do remote interpreting you'd probably be more um circumspect or at least want to know what's the system and test it prior to actually doing a job or
1: I I would definitely ask what the system is, because that system that I'm telling you about, the one that did not work very well, uh, we actually tested it. But then it was just with like uh, with two or three speakers. So so that was that was just two or three people uh, testing it. And at the time, I had my doubts about about the sound. Uh, But then when you got everybody um, logged in, it didn't work. It didn't work as um, as well as. We had hoped it to.
2: Yes, uh, funnily enough, I actually did some testing yesterday for for doing remote, with um, using Polycom system, and um, the dis- what we found was that it really did depend on the on the de- the destination we were connected to. So fun okay. and and ironically, uh, what would have we had? Um, we were connecting to some African destinations where we had very very good sound, and actually, weirdly enough, the worst sound was coming from Singapore. Um, and you oh. would, you, you'd imagine they'd have the most phenomenal connections between yes. Europe and, uh, and, and, and East Asia there, but that wasn't actually the case on that occasion. So mm-hmm. there is always that unknown, I think, isn't there, of how good is the actual connection on the day?
1: Yes, definitely. Definitely. And sometimes systems get a life of their own and then they don't want Indeed. to cooperate. So.
2: <laughs> now, Alexander um, Dreschel, who I think I'm sure you met this week at ATA as well, didn't you?
1: Yes, um, I, I know him from before as well.
2: Yes, and he was. we actually did a podcast with him last week, and he was telling me about these, uh, these on-site remote uh, jobs where there might be two heads of state, for example, meeting. So they don't want the interpreters in the room. So although the two people are in the room, they'll yeah. sit in the room next door and do remote interpreting so that the two people can remain in the room on their own. Is that something you've had experience with?
1: Um, no, when I've done interpreting for heads of states, I was in the room, uh, but I've done something else, which is a uh, phone interpreting for heads of state. So the Foreign Commonwealth Office would um, give me a particular time. They would ring me and then they would patch me through um, and then I would interpret um, on the phone.
2: OK, and how did you find interpreting? I assume that was obviously a consecutive. Yes, or was it consecutive? Yes,
1: yes, that was consecutive.
2: Okay so I it's more comfortable I guess in terms of at least you're sure you're hearing clearly because you're not speaking at the same time.
1: Yes the 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 sound quality is uh, is good. Um but I still find it stressful <laughs> because <laughs> I, I do not like phone interpreting. I prefer to be able to see whom I'm whom I'm interpreting for. Um, so even though they may be people that I've interpreted for before face to face, I don't know on the phone I I find it a bit more it's, it's different. so it you yeah, it is different and then sometimes, uh, one side would have the the speaker on so that like you know more people can can listen and take notes or something yeah. um which might affect the the sound quality a bit but i would i would actually prefer to to see um uh, the people i'm interpreting for because it's not just about their their voices you need to be able to see their their body language their facial expressions like sometimes there is this atmosphere in the room so it is uh, it's important to at least for me to be able to uh, to see them while i'm interpreting
2: to have the full the full context
0: yes yes Uh, definitely
1: uh,
2: absolutely
0: for your ma thesis you developed a course for interpreting students on conference preparation using tablets could you tell us a little bit more about that
1: um, in my experience, there are um, more and more organizations moving towards paperless environments. Uh, so the the meeting documents would be made available on uh, on secure portals or are shared via um, Dropbox or WeShare or something like that, um, and then you are supposed to. Uh, not go and print everything because that sort of like beats the the purpose. <laughs> um, so you are supposed to be able to prepare uh, for these meetings um, electronically. Um, that's why I thought it's it's important then that uh, that students are trained to do this in their um, training phase. Uh, but even for practicing interpreters, like they too need to adapt to this uh, to this new environment. Uh, So I developed a course, the practical part of my thesis was on a course that that teaches uh, the students um, how the portals work, uh, because they do have common features. Um, What are the the apps uh, to use to um, extract and organize glossaries, how to annotate uh, documents, how to efficiently uh, search for information on tablets. So that is, like, in a nutshell, what... um, what the the course entails.
0: Do you think it will just become the norm for the next generation of interpreters to be using technology?
1: Uh, absolutely, I think so. It's uh, technology is moving is moving forward, um, and. Um, I think it's important for, for interpreters to be involved in, in shaping that, that process because mm-hmm. I have the feeling it will be moving forward with us or without us.
0: And it, <laughs> yes.
1: it, it, it better be with us. <laughs> um, and I, I was like, uh, during my master's, I was observing a, a master class in, in consecutive interpreting and there was this one student who stood up and he had his tablet and he has already taken all his notes on, on the tablets and he was doing consecutive interpreting. Um, so... Yes, students definitely uh, are um, mo- using more more technology, um, and the, the generations that uh, that are growing up now, many of them have grown up with uh, with the smartphones and uh, and tablets and and computers uh, from from the very start. So it is not like maybe my generation that uh, that uh, was introduced to computers and uh, and to internet and uh, and all the technologies that we have now uh, we've lived without it for a while uh, but there are these generations that are growing up that have had this as part of their um, existence from the very start so i think it is logical that they would be um, like using a technology and feeling comfortable using it
2: now maha what do you think about these um some of these new programs or apps that are being released and and they and promising automated real-time interpretation do you think, I, do you think that's something that might we, we'll see in our lifetimes
1: um, you know there was this video clip that I watched uh, recently um, about uh, pilot something right. that you put in your uh, ear and you give the other piece to your interlocutor and you are supposed to be able to have a conversation yes and uh, and yeah i thought it was too good to be true um but obviously work is is ongoing on this type of of gadgets and they are bound to improve and and maybe even be a viable modality for communication um but i think it will probably be like what for what is called in dutch house town and and kirk conversations which is like your run out of the mill conversations yes maybe Uh, maybe not necessarily for specialized or for technical kind of communication um but it is it's probably going to be able to facilitate some type of communication um as as it as it moves along and and develops
2: yes i'd be be inclined to agree with you entirely on that it will it will have a purpose but I think it would be more for tourists perhaps of like you say, very simple conversations where people are using very controlled language deliberately yes. um, a bit like you do when you ever do, um, you know, um, speech to text uh, yes. ra- rather than actually replacing, I think yeah, a conference speaker in a specific field of study uh, who might be speaking. I don't know how often you get this. I spent all afternoon yesterday interpreting and um, actually was uh, everybody who was speaking in English were not English speakers. Um, so in itself, it was hard enough to, you know, for me to understand. Yeah. And I think before a computer or, uh, will be able to process that, that might be a way to go.
1: Yeah, that is what one of my colleagues called speaking globish, which so is not <laughs> really English, but
0: it is uh, it is globish, which comes with its own challenges.
2: It does. It does indeed.
0: There's obviously a demand for that type of thing, though, because I think I saw the video for Pilot as well, and they've managed to raise three thousand. Sent more of their uh, crowdfunding than they actually originally asked for.
1: Yes, w- which means that there is a need. It mm-hmm. ch- shows that people would like to uh, to be able to communicate easily in other languages, maybe without having to put in the hours for learning that language. Or if you are indeed a tourist somewhere for for a couple of weeks, you are not going to be uh, investing so much time in in learning the language for. Um, mm-hmm for this for this holiday so the need is definitely there which probably also is the motivator for this kind of uh, of mo- of modalities for communication to uh, to develop and to improve
2: yes i think i think the marketing is fantastic because it does make you think of you know the hitchhikers guide to the galaxy and the babel fish <laughs> um, now will I'm not entirely sure it's going to deliver on that dream but uh, <laughs> but they definitely gave us maybe the dream. part of it maybe part of it a small part of it <laughs> In
0: 2007 you set up Cultural Bridges a company that offers Arabic interpreting translation and cultural training what made you want to do this
1: Um uh, as I said, uh, translation interpreting has uh, have always been part of um, of like what I what I do. And um, when I moved to the UK, I felt that uh, this was like an opportune moment to focus on uh, on on this passion of mine. Um, this was also made easier by the support that the startups were receiving in the UK at the time. So, um, if you just had an idea, you got help with. Putting together a business plan, and you got training on marketing and sales and bookkeeping, and I don't know what. So that there was a lot of um, a lot of support there um, that uh, that helped uh, startups to um, to just uh, you know uh, like you know uh, roll up their sleeves and uh, and and get and get going, um, which is which is what I did. I I wanted to be able to focus on that part of. Um, uh, of my work I didn't want it to be part of what I did I wanted it to be like most of what I did mm-hmm. so I I went for it
2: and it's been uh you're coming up to your 10th birthday so how's it been? how's it gone
1: um I think it has been a very interesting journey so far um I haven't stopped learning uh throughout um I I realized from the very start that um continuous professional development was was a very important um, element to uh, to to keep in mind and to to work on uh, all the time because obviously the, the developments are amazingly quick <laughs> they are happening all the time so you cannot just rely on uh, the skills that uh, that you that you have or that you acquired uh, god knows how many years ago uh, so you need to keep uh, to keep communicating to keep learning to keep um, honing your skills and learning new ones which is uh, what makes my uh, my work very very interesting and motivating because i have decided after 10 years of of like you know being a staff member that uh, I have tried the nine to five existence. It's not for me. (laughs) So, uh, so I prefer to, to have the the, the freedom to decide what I want to do. I, I like being my own boss and, um, and I, I like being able to make the decisions. What, what is good for, for me um, uh, personally and professionally, what is good for my business and, uh, and go for it. So that's, um, yeah, that's, that has been pretty much a, a very interesting journey and it, and it continues to be.
2: And have you found with this, you've been able to achieve a work life balance being self-employed and, uh, Oh yeah, definitely. Yes.
1: Definitely. Um, at the time when I started my my children were still in primary school um, now they are they are much older my, my daughter has just started university and uh, and and my son is going to be joining uh, like you know in uh, in a year or so um, so while they were growing up that was definitely a very good you um, work life balance t- that I managed to to achieve there um obviously with much support from uh, from my dear husband um so yeah that was uh, that was good and and now that uh, that like uh, the children are leaving the house i uh, i even have more and more freedom to um, to focus on on my work i do not have to say no to assignments because it is during the school exams period or something so yes. that uh,
0: that is that is uh, good for uh, for for the business <laughs> what kind of businesses or organizations have you worked with I, I
1: have worked with a variety of, of organizations and companies of, of different sizes and and areas of focus um, which makes my work very uh, very interesting so um It is it is really really very varied like uh uh, one day you would be interpreting for a group of uh, water management engineers (laughs) and uh, and then you are visiting all these uh plants where they uh, purify water and and recycle it and uh, and reuse it etc so that that is a totally different topic and it requires like you know a totally different kind of preparation um while at, at the other day um you would be doing a tour of uh, of the Parliament and uh, discussing issues that parliamentarians have to have to grapple with. Um, and sometimes it is something that is uh, as important to us all, like the um, the, the the treaty uh, for um, the like the the Conference of the Parties and the environment and our planet. And so it is it is so very different and so very varied, and they are all interesting in their in their own ways.
0: How important is cross-cultural awareness when interpreting very um, I was I was recently talking with
1: um, with a client um, about the painting the last Supper and and she was mentioning that um, she was like you know listening to to an, an interpreter. Um, recently who kept calling it the last dinner mm-hmm. and 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 she and and i can imagine because maybe then if you do not know the um, the context very well in arabic for instance it is the same supper and dinner are the same so they they do not make a difference it is the same word yes uh, but but obviously uh, the last supper it is the last supper it cannot be made anything else uh, so she so she was saying that even though i got the meaning uh, i was a bit disturbed a bit by the idea that it was being called the last dinner all, all the time so yes. it is important to to understand the, the cultural context um Another story was from um, a football team that was going to be an, uh, like, you know, an, uh, a football team of an Arab country, uh, mostly Muslims, and they were going to be competing during Ramadan. Um, so the one of the uh, journalists during a press conference was asking if the players are going to fast. And the interpreter, who was not an Arab, not a Muslim, uh, did not get it this way, did not understand that it was in the context of Ramadan. Yes. So the interpreting came is, are they going too quickly uh, <laughs> instead of like too fast? So, so then it is important. And I'm sure like we all make mistakes and uh, we, we all like, you know, can uh, can like, you know, r- relate stories of when we got it really wrong. Um, yes, yes. But, but then these points about um, cultural awareness um, are important because you are not interpreting in a vacuum you are interpreting in a context Um, so then if you do not understand the context well then you are bound to um, make this kind of mistakes in which case this is not helping the the communication that you are supposed to be facilitating no
2: you're absolutely right i can remember in the early days i made a a blunder along those lines and um I was supposed to translate that they were Austrian eggs that had been decorated in the 17th century but I actually translated them as ostrich eggs and <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear it very clearly and uh, when about 40 people started laughing I realized that it wasn't ostrich eggs it was Austrian eggs <laughs>
1: No, I remember in my very first visit to Austria. I don't know why, but like they were they were selling these t-shirts in tourist shops that had on it um a kangaroo and um and like um and the slogan was Austria, no kangaroos. So I don't know if it is like people were <laughs> mixing up Austria and Australia for some reason,
0: but uh, yeah, some... but they needed to make it clear.
2: It <laughs> was a bit got a bit mixed up there.
0: Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us about your involvement with Red
1: Tea? I am a member of the Human Rights Committee of the International Federation of uh, of Translators. Mm -hmm. And the main reason I I joined was the interpreters in conflict zones, uh, because uh, they are people who were doing their job, uh, but in a context that made them um, regarded by their compatriots as traitors. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are left in a very hard situation where many of them had to like flee their places of residence. Uh, some were killed. Some had their family members killed or abducted. So they, they are living under that constant threat of uh, being killed or fearing for their lives um, simply for doing their job. Um, so the, the Red Tea is an organization that advocates um, for on, on behalf of uh, translators and, and interpreters. And uh, the uh, the organization is trying to Help these um, translators and interpreters uh, in conflict zones to um, reach safe uh, safe havens. It is uh, um, talking with uh, with the United Nations about giving translators and interpreters like a special status or protected status, like uh, like journalists, for instance. Yes. Um, and it uh, is working with uh, different organizations like. Uh, the AIC, the International Association of Conference Interpreters, the International Federation of Translators and, and several others uh, to um, to help these, uh, these translators and, and interpreters. And I've recently written an article about this for the Bulletin of the Institute of Translation and Interpreting. Mm-hmm. Raising awareness about the situation of these uh, colleagues and how the Red is helping and also asking the members of the Institute to sign the petition um, to be able to uh, help these uh, these colleagues.
2: That's a great initiative, Maha. We'll we'll put a link to your article and uh, and to the Red Tea site on the on the on the podcast page, so people can go and have a look at that and see what they can do to support it. Um, Thank
1: you. That would be very helpful. In spreading your own, the
2: word, is is this something that you yourself have had experience in? what um, i interpreting in conflicts
1: no no i uh, i have not really interpreted in uh, in conflict zones um like maybe it's not really a conflict zone but like i have interpreted uh, in uh, in mitilini um at the moria camp for uh, for syrian refugees right um so then you you come you come a bit closer to um to the problem but it's definitely not being in in the conflict zone itself so you are dealing with the uh, the survivors of, of the conflict. Of the conflict, uh, yes. But you are not being in, in a threatened um, or a threatening, sorry, situation.
0: It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Maha. Thank you. You can keep up to date with what Maha is doing by following her on Twitter. She's at Maha Elmetvali. And for updates and news on interpreting, training and technology, head to our website, linguali.com, or follow us on Twitter. We're at Linguali. Thank you for listening.